turn your hearts and your ears to hear the Lord speak. And we pray. Father, I thank you for your word and for your spirit. And Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to meet with brothers and sisters in your body, the body of Christ. And now, Lord, as we look into your word, we ask that you give us hearts to receive and ears to hear. And Lord, that you would send us bread from heaven that would change our lives and conform us to your image and make us more like you than ever before. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2 says, You are our epistle, or our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle or a letter of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. Pause. My daddy used to say, people will read your life and open their Bible, or read your life and close their Bible. Our lives are a testimony. We are not the Bible, we're not the replacement of it, but we are certainly a reflection of its place in our life. Verse 4, and we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Can we say amen? Amen. And he is the all-sufficient one. All right who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter, which refers to the law, kills, but the Spirit gives life. If the Christian walk was just words only, without the activity of the Spirit to enable us to fulfill those words, the words in this book could only condemn us. But because of the Spirit's involvement in the application of the Word, the Word, like a mirror, shows us where we need to be cleaned up, and the Spirit, like soap, begins to work in our lives to bring that cleansing. Verse 7, But if the ministry of death, that is, the Old Covenant, the Ten Commandments, could never save anyone, they can only show you where you need to be saved. So therefore, it proves that we're worthy of death, which Christ came to die in our place. If the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, the Ten Commandments are awesome, and the first set were written by the finger of God, the second set, Moses had to write them out. They were awesome. So that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? When the law was given on Mount Sinai, it was such an awesome season in the history of Israel in the wilderness that Moses, who received that law, the Bible says it's in uh, Exodus chapter 34, his face shined. I mean, his face shined. So much so that he put a veil on his face because he'd be reading them the law and they'd be looking at his face. Ooh, look at that. Meanwhile, he's giving all these thou shalt nots. They're being distracted by their shining. If that law, which which could only bring death, it's our schoolmaster that pointed us to Christ, proves our need for a Savior, if that law was awesome, how much more awesome is the New Testament? The point he's saying. Verse 9. 
For if the ministry of condemnation have glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. The scriptures bear out this fact that the new covenant is better than the old covenant. The old covenant shared a way you could become righteous. But the problem with it was nobody could ever fulfill it all. So the people of God, in an attempt to fulfill the law, would add more laws to it, man-made traditions. All right, you don't want to break the law of the Sabbath, so therefore we're going to give you just how many things you can do, just how far you can walk, just how much you can carry, so you won't break that law. And so <clears throat> all they did was just add on either more legalism or it caused them to say, hey, I need to offer a sacrifice so that my sins can be atoned for. That season in the history of the people of God was an awesome season. But the season we're in now is better because we have received righteousness not by our works, but by the works of Jesus. Not by the blood of bulls and goats, but by the blood of the Lamb, the one who poured out his life for us. He lived the perfect life and then credited that life to our account. Not only has his blood washed my sins away by being a substitutionary offering for me, his blood represented his perfect life, and he poured it out for us. He gave us the free gift of righteousness. Oh, but I don't deserve it. I'm not righteous. We're not on our own. But through Christ, we, our books have been changed. He's imputed us with righteousness. Not only has our negative balance been cleared up, which is a great thing if you're deeply in debt, but now we have a huge credited balance. The negative balance is cleared up with forgiveness, and the credited balance is made possible because of the free gift of righteousness. Isn't that good? Yeah. All right, look at verse 10 again. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. That's the new covenant. For if what was passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. All right, he received great respect for the glowing face he had, but by putting a veil on, people couldn't see the glow as it died down. For all they knew, he was still glowing. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face, verse 13, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded, for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. For even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. As an analogy, he uses this illustration, this part of Israel's history, where this prophet of God, the great man Moses, received the law of God, had a face that glowed, and to hide that glow, to not distract from the law, as well as to, I don't know, not make people afraid of him, he would wear a veil. So he used that veil 
to prove his point as an illustration that the Old Testament that is not understood is not understood by God's people because of the veil. And the veil is removed in Christ. It's in Jesus that we understand the whole purpose of the law. Without Jesus, the Old Testament is bondage. It's death. It's condemnation. But with Christ coming and fulfilling the law, he didn't come to destroy it. He came to fulfill it. He came and fulfilled the law. And through him, we can see the whole purpose of it. And, and the whole book opens up to us. And the whole Bible is ours today because of Jesus. Amen? Now, here's where we're looking. Verse 17 and 18. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Are you glad about it? But we all, yes, we all, everybody say we all, y'all, with unveiled face, amen, all right, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Let me read verse 18 again. But we are with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So through Jesus, we no longer have a veil, and we no longer have anything to be ashamed of. We can approach him because he's given us his righteousness. And here it says we can behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. The mirror, a mirror is an indirect picture of what's in front of it. We're not yet in heaven. Who knows that? As wonderful as the new covenant is, there's something even better coming than that. Perfection is coming. But we can behold in this mirror, the word of God, the glory of the Lord. And in, and in beholding, we are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory. What we behold influences what we become. And all this is possible is because of the Spirit of the Lord. John MacArthur commented this in his Bible on this text. He said, Believers in the New Covenant have no veils. That is, nothing obstructs their vision of Christ as revealed in the Scripture. Paul's emphasis here is not so much on the reflective capabilities of a mirror as it is on the intimacy of it. A person can bring a mirror right up to his face and get an unobstructed view. Mirrors in his day were polished metal and thus offered a far from perfect reflection. Though the vision is unobstructed and intimate, believers do not see a perfect representation of God's glory now, but will one day. And in talking about that, 1 Corinthians 13, 12 gives us this promise. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. Who's looking forward to that day? Lord returns. He goes on to say, Being transformed speaks of a continual, progressive transformation. The ultimate goal of the believer is to be like Christ. And by continually focusing on him, the spirit transforms the believer more and more into his image. From one level of glory to another level of glory from one level of manifesting Christ to another. 
this verse describes a progressive, describes progressive sanctification. Now, don't let that word scare you. Sanctification means to set something apart for a special purpose. If you put money in the bank, you have sanctified that money, set it apart from the money you would use for other purposes, for another day, for another purpose. And we've been set apart to God for his purposes rather than our old sinful purposes. The more believers grow in their knowledge of Christ, the more he is revealed in their lives. Jack Hayford, in his Bible, commented about this. He said, Beholding as in a mirror connotes reflecting as well as looking into. As we behold the glory of the Lord, we are continually transformed into the same image by the Spirit of the Lord. We then, with ever-increasing glory, reflect what we behold. It's hard to be like Jesus unless you know what Jesus is like. Amen? All right. Sam Storms has this to say. He said, Becoming like Jesus is the fruit of beholding Jesus. We take on the characteristics, values, and qualities of whatever we most cherish and to which we devote our hearts and minds. What you see is what you be. Praising God is very important. Because you will praise the things you value. You will pay attention to the things you love. And those things will influence you. Green Bay Packer fans do some ridiculous things because of the things they love and the people that love their team with them. Not picking on the Green Bay Packers, but I'm just giving an example there. What you see, that is what you focus upon influences what you be. Paul's mere analogy does not suggest that we see Christ indistinctly or in a distorted way, but indirectly when compared to, quote, face to face, which 1 Corinthians 13, 12 talks about, which is what we have to look forward to. At that point, our transformation will be instantaneous rather than progressive. 1 John 3, 2 gives us this promise. We know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So as I experience the Lord, as I get to know the Lord, as I understand the Lord, as I grow in the Lord, I become more like him. Because my love for him increases, and I'm just motivated to do those things that please him. It's progressive. You may look at me and say, oh, man, he needs to hurry up with you. But we have this hope. When he returns with fire in his eyes, he, I believe he will vanquish all evil from his people's lives. Instantaneously, we will be made like him. We'll get rid of these bodies that are prone to sin, and our minds will be renewed, and, and a whole lot of neat things will happen. So that's what we have to look forward to. But I'm not preaching about that today. I'm preaching about right now. This progressive thing. How does it happen? What makes it work? That's what I'm hoping to accomplish. Page two in your bulletin. What we behold, we become. What we gaze upon will affect our lives. There was an article in Psychology Today years ago that did a lab in a... In a college class where they had members of the opposite sex stare at each other, didn't know each other. 
And over a period of minutes, they, I don't know how, how they do it, some of it seems to be subjective to me, but they noticed those who stared at each other the longest liked each other the most. So we've got a room full of singles together, and all right, you look in her eyes, and you look in his eyes, and, and the more they stared at each other, the more affection they had towards the other one, the greater the desire to get to know that person. What you gaze at, stare at, has an impact on you. Proverbs says it like this, as a man thinks, so is he. What you look at affects what you think. How many ever heard, um, sow a thought, reap an action? Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. I'd just like to add one thing on to those principles. Sow a look or a gaze. Reap a thought, sow a thought, reap an action, sow an action, reap a habit, sow a habit. Things start with looking. What are you beholding? What are you gazing on in your life? In the quiet of the night, what are you thinking about? It will have an impact on your future. The word behold means to see. It means to regard. It means to keep in view. It means to look at. It means to keep a hold of. The simplest is to be holding something, is to behold. When you hold something in your vision, you are be, you beholding that thing. <laughs> How does our beholding affect our becoming? I think it was under the Reagan administration. Our government spent millions of dollars to see whether or not Pornography had an, had an impact on the culture. How dumb can you get and still breathe? What you look at has an impact on how you think, and how you think has an impact on how you act. And how you act has an impact on everybody around you. Yeah, but I got freedom of speech. Well, you do. You got the freedom to be an idiot, too. Proverbs, uh, another verse says it like this. Where there is no vision... The people perish. Where there is no clear vision, people suffer with the leader over them that has no vision. Um, the New King James Version says, Where there is no redemptive revelation, the people cast off restraint. What you look at and how you look at it affects the restraints in your life and the, the motivations of your heart. So, here's three things about how our beholding affects our becoming. Who we look at the most will determine who influences us the most. Young people, what posters do you have on the wall? Is it a thug? Is he a thug? Or a bimbo? Or a celebrity that can't stay married? Or a Christian that's compromising and not true with the Lord, and you're staring at that person, that person is going to influence your life. Who gave them the right to do that? Well, they look good. Well, yeah, a lot of things look good. If a steak looked good, would you eat it if you thought there might be worms in it? Might be some good food in the garbage can, but would you dig for it? 
There's a whole lot of role models in the world that the people that, that our nation is staring at, and these role models themselves say, I'm not a role model, I'm just making money. <laughs> we still do it. They still make role models out of them because it makes money for other people who market them. Next point, where we continue to look will influence where we are going. Now, I'm told, not sure that it's true, but I'm told that when I'm driving, if I look at the person I'm talking to, I change lanes. <laughs> a runner who's going to run a race has to focus on the finish line, has to focus on the lane that he's on, otherwise he'll veer off course. pastor visited a home one time of a woman who was so sad, all three of her boys were in the Navy and gone. I don't know why they all joined the Navy. It's a true story. He looked up, they were sitting at the dining room table, just talking about how good her boys were, and they're serving their country in the Navy, but they're all gone. He looked up from the dining room table, and right there on the wall was a painting. And he said, how long has that painting been there? She said, oh, it's been there ever since my boys were little. And it was a beautiful picture of a ship <laughs> on the ocean with the sun shining, the waves. I mean, it was, just, it was the kind of picture that just made you want to be there. You could smell the sea, the salt in the air. Where we continue to look will influence where we are going. Third point, what we look upon will influence what we think and do. What are you watching? It has an influence on you. I have a friend that for a season of his life worked at a, a place of business that had pornography everywhere. In, this, in the shop, there was just centerfolds everywhere and stacks of magazines and corners. And, and uh, he got so tired of stumbling into the sin of lust that he told his wife about it. And in telling her, you know, the scriptures tell us if we confess our faults to one another, we'll be healed. Telling her he had the strength to go to work and not look at that stuff. It was a supernatural thing. And it wasn't long before the Lord opened the door for him to get a job elsewhere, and he got out of there. He was sharing a story with me. I said, how could a business like that operate? How's that business doing today? He says, oh, it eventually went bankrupt. You know, you can't run a business making addicts out of your employees and get any decent work out of them. What you look upon will influence what you think and do. It just will. Real important. What you behold is a clue to what you're going to become. Hebrews 12.1 tells us to lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. <clears throat> now, if you read that, you may think, oh, it's sequential. First, I've got to lay aside every weight then I've got to lay aside the sin that easily ensnares me. And then I've got to run with endurance a race that is set before me. Then I need to look to Jesus. <clears throat> you can't do none of that stuff unless you're looking to Jesus. Through looking to Jesus, I am able to trust him where I can lay aside the weight. Maybe the weight in your life is fear. Fear will slow us down. It robs us of creativity. It sidetracks us. It makes us always think negatively. And because you're focused on Jesus, he who gives hope, you're able to lay that down. He frees us from sin. 
You're able to lay this sin down that would easily ensnare you by looking to Jesus. No one can live the Christian life except Jesus. And so by looking to him, his life is lived through us. He does it. And we can run with endurance the race that is set before us by looking to Jesus. This is what enables us to have endurance, to have purity, and to have freedom. Who is Jesus? He's the author and finisher of our faith. And here's what he did. For the joy that was set before him, endure the cross, despise the shame, set down at the right hand of God. How did he endure the cross, despise the shame, and set down at the right hand of God? For the joy that was set before him. He, in his life, was beholding something. He was looking to the future. Knowing he was going to receive all authority. Would sit down at the right hand of the Father. Knowing he was providing redemption for his suffering humanity. For the joy of that. Beholding that. He looked beyond his own suffering. He did not enjoy it. He despised the shame of it. But he was able to endure because of what he was beholding. The joy that was set before him. You know, the Father endured the cross too. The cross was the greatest sin that was ever committed. And the mystery of salvation is God used the greatest act of wickedness transformed it into the greatest act of kindness. The greatest act of wickedness was on our part, the human race's part. Kindness was on God's part. He forgave that. Even when I was happening, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So we endure by beholding Jesus. Jesus endured for the joy that was set before him. Now stay with me now. I don't want to blow your mind, but this is something to think about. As God, who knows everything, He knew you. He has foreknowledge. Because of the joy of saving you and the benefit of what his offering would provide for you, Harvey, he endured. Jeff and Sean, because of the joy of what was going to happen in your life, he endured. name here. I'm not going to start, but because of you, he endured. Do you think when God saves you, it's like, okay, there's another one. Let's put his name in the book. Oh, the Bible says when a sinner repents, man, the angels rejoice. Jesus confesses us before the Father in heaven. He's excited about it. He has foreknowledge. He knows what's going to happen. But when it happens, he's happy. You may know you're going to go on a vacation. And you're happy about it. Are you not? But when it happens, you're really happy. Amen. Right? So for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Surely we can endure for him. There's joy ahead for us. Therefore, we must look to him. Verse 3 goes on. For consider him. 
When you consider something, you think about that something. You look to that something. You hold that something, you beholding that in your mind. For consider him who endured such hostility against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Today you may feel like throwing in the towel. I've had enough. I'm ready to check out. I'm ready to quit. You may wish you could fall asleep and never wake up to end all the pain. The word tells us to consider him who endured such hostility, lest you become weary and discouraged. The story's not over. You're not alone. He's been there before you. You can go to him and receive the help you need by faith. This is possible by beholding him. How do we behold Jesus Christ? If what we behold affects our becoming and we want to become like Jesus, how do we behold Jesus? Because we walk by faith and not by sight. How does this happen? Well, first of all, we can behold Jesus by faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So faith comes by hearing. And hearing comes when God speaks to us. So faith comes by hearing God speak to us. So when God reveals something to you, whether it's an inner knowing or it's something in, your word, in his word made real to you, when that happens, you have faith. Stand on that word that he's given you and behold the Lord work. Watch the circumstances change. We behold Jesus as he's revealed to us in the scriptures. Whenever we read the Bible, we need to look for Jesus. Where is he in there? Where is that promise that only he can fulfill? Sam Storms wrote in his book, um, The Pleasures of God, he said, The transforming vision of the glory of Jesus is found in the anointed portrayal of him in Holy Scripture. When we humbly kneel before the inspired authority of the written word and diligently seek out the treasures buried in it, The Spirit of God shines a light in our hearts, awakening us to the person of Jesus Christ. He quickens our minds and illuminates our thoughts, enabling us to do more than merely recite words on a page. When we eat and drink from the fountain of Scripture, Jesus comes alive in our souls, and His beauty and kindness and loving presence are indelibly stamped on our hearts. Seeing Jesus in the Word reconfigures our emotional chemistry and transforms the disposition of our hearts in terms of what we love, desire, cherish, and hate. Seeing Jesus in the scriptures brings inspiration, revelation, rather than condemnation and perspiration. The problem, many times we encounter in our walk with the Lord, is the failure to behold him Behold the Lord. Thirdly, we look to Jesus by focusing upon him in worship and prayer. Worship and praise and prayer is so important because it's there we focus our heart, our minds, and our bodies on the presence of the living God. 
And it's in that setting that that mirror experience can happen. It happened for some people in the building today. Come in here, we heard a couple of people share mountains of problems. We're looking forward to hearing what's going to happen out of all this. Mountain of problems. But as we are worshiping, that mirror thing happened. And the realization came to their hearts. He's worthy of my praise anyway, and I want to praise him anyhow. <laughs> He's God, and I praise him. That's why going to church twice a year isn't enough, because the progressive transformation that happens in our lives, we need to praise him often. We need to assemble often. The Bible says the more often as we see the day of the Lord approaching, we should assemble ourselves together because it's in this setting that we're able to minister to the Lord together and minister to one another. Brings us to our next point. We can see him through his church, that is, his functioning body. assembly of the saints. We perceive the Lord through the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 14. Verse 23. The context he's talking about tongues and prophecy. beholding the Lord. Therefore, if a whole church, 1 Corinthians 14, 23, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you're out of your mind? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed, and so falling down on his face... He will worship God and report that God is truly among you. This is the reason we meet together. I'm looking forward to the fulfillment of this promise in our midst. As God restores his New Testament church, I believe this is going to happen. Where people will just begin worshiping, saying, God is in this place. Therefore, because of that promise, verse 26, how is it then, brethren? Whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification, that is, for encouraging. So no rebuking going on. If there's any rebuking, the leadership of the church needs to do that in a very loving manner. But the body of Christ is to edify itself. We're to encourage each other. And if someone offends you, then you're to go to them by yourself alone. All right, in this setting, we behold the Lord. As I hear people share today reasons to praise the Lord, I realize just how great he is. I'm reminded of things I know. I hear things I didn't know. It helps me to behold him. Next point. We can see Jesus Christ more clearly as our veils are removed. Some of us, when we come to Christ, we have layers of veils. <laughs> He saves us, but our minds are not renewed. We have old ways of thinking, filters built in, safety mechanisms, 
that hinder us in our growth of becoming more like Christ. Those veils could be wrong believing. You know, God's mad at me right now because I sinned last week. So I'm kind of walking on eggshells. And the reason we have that thought about an authority figure is mom and dad were that way. When you did wrong and you repented, they supposedly forgave you, but boy, you were on thin ice for the next few days. That was not a whole picture of what Jesus is about. When he forgives you, he chooses to not remember. So you're not on probation anymore with him. Well, that believing is false. It's not correct. It's not a true image of God. You need to pull that veil away so you can see the Lord more clearly. Unscriptural traditions. We all have them. I know what the Bible says, but out comes the tradition. And it keeps us from being more like Christ. Cultural paradigms. You know, you can't get too focused on Jesus. You might not come back. You know, we have to live in this real world. Christianity is not quite intellectual enough. What can we do to make it more intellectual? We're not talking about a philosophy. We're talking about a person. Jesus Christ, whom we can behold through the Spirit and through his word. Productive filters, fear, lack of trust, judgmentalism, condemning everybody, sets you up to condemn yourself when you do wrong. You're projecting the wrong image of what Christianity is about, and it's going to boomerang on you. You judge, you're going to be judged. Pride. I don't want to look like an idiot. I'm not going to praise the Lord. I'm not going to behold him. That's not really cool. We're not called to be cool. We're called to be hot or cold. Amen? Inferiority. Well, yeah, I know Jesus is real, but I'm such a loser. So you never look to him and behold him who's come to make you more than a conqueror. Unforgiveness. When you don't forgive someone, you're withholding mercy. And withholding hinders beholding. Negative Critical mindsets. Got to get rid of this stuff. As I behold him, he brings correction to these things. A lack of knowledge. Not seeking the Lord. The Bible says in Hebrews 11.6, Without faith it is impossible to please God, but those who come to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Hyper busyness. Just being busy doing stuff. Chasing your tail. Trying to fix something that broke when you try to fix something else that broke. When you try to fix something else. Trying to keep all the plates spinning that you got to do. You're not beholding him. Your wholeness isn't going to come from getting everything done. That grass will still be there tomorrow. Behold him. Next point. We experience his reality as he convicts us of sin. I know Jesus is real because I behold him every time I sin. He won't let me get by. I cannot rest till I get on my face and ask him for forgiveness. I behold him. We gaze upon who he is in the biblical sacraments. We'll come back to that. We look to him in hope by looking forward to our future with him. 
looking forward to his return. We behold Jesus as his spirit empowers us for service. As you go out and do things for the Lord, you behold him in a unique way. A friend of mine recently came back to a fully devoted life to the Lord. And for all he knew, he was just going to spend time in his room when he wasn't working, praying and reading books and worshiping. He thought, man, I sure hope the Lord has other things for me. It wasn't very many days before the phone rang and somebody needed some help. And he was so excited. Yes, I get to go out and share the love of Jesus in a practical way. We gaze upon who he is in the biblical sacraments. When I see someone baptized, I realize he was buried for my sins and he's risen from the dead. And in that watery grave, we act out what the Lord did for us. The anointing of oil. We see that he's the one who anoints us with the Holy Spirit. Marriage is a sacrament of the church. The husband and wife walk in love and unity. That's a picture of Jesus and his church. I behold him in that. I want to behold the Lord so he makes me a better husband. Amen. Have you beheld him today? It will affect who you are positive way. We're going to end the service now with communion. And in communion, we're going to behold the Lord. We're going to be reminded of what he's done for us. In the bread, we're reminded that on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body that was broken for you. In the bread, I'm reminded that his body was broken for me. Everybody say, for me. me. Tell your neighbor, no, me. No, me. <laughs> then he took the cup and blessed it and gave, us his, gave it to his disciples and said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which was shed for you. We talked a lot about blood today. Not only was the blood his life, that was offered in the place of our life, an agent that washes our sins away, but his blood was also offered in cutting a covenant with someone. In the old days when you made a covenant with someone, you pledged your life to it. And if I do not fulfill this promise, may I be dead. And it's symbolic of that. Many times they would cut some part of their body and shed blood, let blood mingle between the two parties, pour blood in a cup, mix it with wine, and drink it. It's a sign that I'm serious about this. I'm going to make this a blood covenant. That's what Christ did for us. He made a new covenant with God and man. As a man and as God, he shed his blood. And in so doing, he paid the penalty for breaking the covenant. I don't know about you, but since I've been saved, I've broken the covenant more times than I want to count. But his blood was shed for that too. He paid the price for breaking the covenant so that I can be. I mean, it's an immutable, unbreakable covenant. It's a wonderful thing. I wrote a song a couple years ago. So we've been adopted by the Father. 
chosen to be pure, chastened and corrected, empowered to endure. And we will never, never fall away. Oh, but didn't the Bible say we could fall away? Saints, I've got a father that will kick me in the butt if I fall away. I don't know what falling away would entail, but I don't want that much pain in my life. He's chosen me. He's written his name in the book. He's not standing with a eraser waiting to wipe it out. There's no mountain high enough. There's no valley low enough. There's no ocean vast enough. There's no distance far enough to separate us from his love. We will never fall away. Enter into this covenant. He made promises to us. Let's make promises to him. Lord, some of us keep falling because we're afraid we're going to fall. Oh, I'm going to fall. I'm going to fall. Just walk and trust that if you do fall, 